The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Are you a healthcare professional looking to translate psychedelic research into practice? Then register for Psychedelic Harm Reduction and Integration, a professional training offered by psychologist Elizabeth Nielsen and Ingmar Gorman at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Earn 12 continuing education credits as you discover how to better support clients who have an interest in psychedelics. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I had just arrived in London at 18 and spotted this movie marquee, Meetings with Remarkable Men. The film was about the philosopher Gurdjieff, but it was the title that spoke to me. I wanted to know people like that, people changing the world by the way they lived. I've sought them out ever since, and now we'll hear from many of them on the Victoria Moran podcast, Meetings with Remarkable Women. Welcome to the podcast. Your host, Victoria Moran, author of Creating a Charmed Life, Younger by the Day, and Main Street Vegan, invites you to conversations designed to help you thrive in your body, cozy up to your soul, and use your unique gifts to change the world. Now, here's Victoria. I love people who look for the big picture. I mean, I love a lot of people. But it's really easy for me to love people extra who are kind of looking at life a little bit extra. Now, maybe that's because the first person I was absolutely in love with, my grandmother age nanny, who came to live with us when I was six months old and who brought into my world all sorts of wonderful ideas about the oneness of wisdom traditions and how it's pretty good shot that maybe we've been here before and all kinds of other remarkable things kind of primed me for being very, very fond of women like the one that you're going to meet right now. Hi, everybody. I'm Victoria Moran, your host for the Victoria Moran podcast, Meetings with Remarkable Women. And the one that we're going to be talking with today is just that. She is Reverend Sarah Bowen, an ordained interfaith minister and author of books including Spiritual Rebel and Sacred Sendoffs, an animal chaplain's advice for surviving animal loss, making life meaningful, and healing the planet. She is a co-founder and co-director of the Compassion Consortium, and she heads up the Compassion Consortium Animal Chaplaincy Training Program, which just launched, and we'll find out if there's still time for somebody to get in on that, if not next year, and you can find out all about such things at CompassionConsortium.org. Welcome, Reverend Sarah. Thank you, Victoria. Delight to chat with you here. 
It's going to be so much fun because I know that in so many ways we have the same passions and yet we come at them from different points of view. So I think that's going to be really fun because I feel that a lot of our listeners probably share one or two or more of these passions and they're coming at them from their own way. So talk to us a little bit about who you are and how you got to be the woman you are today. Well, you know, I, I like to start by saying I, you know, I was quite a troublemaker. And, and I think that's important to the woman that I became. Uh, and I think it's important to start off there as well, since uh, folks who might have heard the reverend that is often attached to the front of my name might have a certain picture uh, that appears with, with those words. And so my story is, is messy and complicated and delightful and at the same time was confusing. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in the 70s and the 80s. Those were my formative years with a lot of mixed messages about uh, what women could do and, and what clergy was. So I think, you know, I come to my perspective in life of being able to hold a lot of different viewpoints and trying really, really, really hard uh, not to get myself into thinking of what is good and bad uh, and, and other kinds of binaries like that. So your dad was a Protestant pastor. What was that like? You know, he was a Protestant pastor in a neighborhood that was mostly Catholic and Jewish. So I was this kind of odd kid. And my Catholic friends would tell me, you know, I, I wasn't supposed to be born because priests aren't supposed to have kids. And my Jewish friends would be confused because we also belong to the Jewish Community Center and my father spoke Hebrew. So, you know, there were a lot of questions about what was this thing called Protestantism. And, you know, when your dad is, when, when dad's work is the church, it's interesting because you're on a, a pedestal in some way of, of being very visible, you know, what you do. Uh, and where you show up are, are very, very visible and can often be an extension of your father. And I, I know that's the case also for doctor's kids and kids of police chiefs and that kind of thing. But there's all there's a kind of moral consideration, I think, that goes along with when you're a preacher's kid. So we tend to go one of two ways. We tend to be a model preacher's kid. Or we tend to go towards rebellion. And, and I did the latter. So I, I really loved my father very, very much. I learned so much from him. And uh, it's surprising to find that I actually, after doing a lot of other things, ended up, you know, in the family business. But there were many, many years uh, where, you know, I had a lot of questions about Christianity and I had a lot of questions about its usefulness and I had a lot of things I didn't like. And so there was quite a kind of journey around, you know, how do you, how do you tell your father you don't always believe in some of the things that his position entails? So I think that's, I think that's the most messy thing about being a preacher's kid. Well, I love it when you tell your messy stories, and I'm going to ask about some of the animals that you brought into church, but I also just want to share something else that we have a little bit in common, because I was one of those doctor's kids. And my dad's patients really revered him. And I think a lot of that was because if people didn't have the money to pay, they just came anyway. And then they were always giving him things. I mean, I found this beautiful violin 
once in a storage room and he told me that this man couldn't afford a surgery for his wife and my dad would have done it for nothing, but the man wanted him to have this violin. Well, nobody played the violin, so it was just there. But there were all these sorts of things of like going to a department store with my little charge card and going to buy my school clothes in September. And half the time the clerk would say, oh, your dad cured my sinus infections. And <laughs> And so it kind of makes you think you have this bigger than life thing to live up to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I guess the other thing, I love your neighborhood. I, lo I love your um, Jewish Catholic Protestant neighborhood because the neighborhood where my dad practiced, we, we only lived there part of the time, a little bit of the time we actually lived in an apartment above his office, but it was a neighborhood that had been Eastern European, um, mostly Jewish at one point, and then it became sort of Italian. And by the time I was born, it was almost entirely African-American. And so we had all these religious inputs. So I can remember big funerals at, at Black Baptist churches and, and Greek Orthodox weddings and, and bar mitzvahs. I mean, it was just this United Nations of religion. And I don't think you can grow up like that and then say, oh, well, I'm just going to be this one thing. I think you're right about that. And I think what we see these days in, you know, what we might call pluralism or multiple belonging or spiritually fluid you know, different terms that we have. I think that reflects that because we have more and more visibility into what other people believe and how they practice it. And I think it has, I think it has done one thing to enrich, you know, how we can connect spiritually. It's also, on the other hand, raised a lot of questions about cultural appropriation and, and raised some other kind of messy questions with that. But I remember it, it helped me try to figure out, you know, how, how is, how is, how are things the same? How are things different? And how do I react? How do I respond when something is different? And, and that's, you know, for me, that had a lot to do. That's where the animals come in. Uh, because, you know, I saw my father taking a a lot of care of humans. I spent a lot of time in funeral homes and going to hospitals and hospice and in between, you know, swim practice and the dentist, we'd be stopping by the funeral home. And so, you know, I saw all this kind of care and concern for beings. And I also saw that we didn't, we didn't extend the same to animals. So at a very, very young age, I started bringing home little squash chipmunks and squirrels and, and other little critters in my lunchbox. And I would, you know, bring them home and very reverently, I seem to remember sometimes we would put on like the neighbor's black lingerie. So we looked more <laughs> like we were clergy, um, but we would, you know, we would dress up and then have these little funerals for these beings and do the things that we saw dad doing. I remember my sister used to officiate little weddings for the people in the neighborhood and I did all the funerals. And, you know, we were trying to do what we saw my dad do in ways of caring, but extending it. And I think that's kind of fascinating because I, I didn't know what that would mean. I didn't know that that would mean that I would grow up to, uh, to do that as a profession, but it came from somewhere very, very deep in my heart at the time. 
tell us the bringing the animal to church story. Oh, yeah. Well, okay. So fast forward from being a cute little six-year-old with my little braids and my Girl Scout outfit to being a somewhat surly 16-year-old with a punk rock haircut who loved to wear red flannel shirts and combat boots. Okay. So we need to make that transition of of what I I was like as a teenager. Uh, But I was still involved in the church and we used to go to these ecumenical church retreats where they'd have I don't know what they were thinking, but they'd have like 1200 of us all together at a college where we'd have workshops and panels and we'd all kind of sleep, sleep in a big gymnasium and all of this. And I was speaking on a panel and we had a little free time and I went into town and there was a pet shop. And and here's one of those weird things, right? I love animals. I want to go into the pet shop. And at the time, I didn't realize many of the problems I know now about pet shops, but I, you know, I went in. And they had mice there with a little sign that said only 99 cents each. And I was super excited because that was the only little critter I could afford in there. And so I you know, took up my dollar and I went up to give it to them. And they said, oh, you know, what's your snake's name? And I was like, I don't I don't know what you mean. And they said, these are these are feeder mice. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. This is this is you know, going to live with me. This is a mouse that's going to live with me. And they said, okay, you know, and and handed it to me, but there wasn't a cage or there wasn't anything like that. So I I put the little guy in my pocket and about an hour and a half later, while we were sitting in one of the church services, I guess, you know, little critter wanted to be free and climbed out of the pocket and climbed across my back, you know, and kind of started wandering around much to the dismay of the girls behind me uh, who screamed out and I got kind of taken into the area where you had to talk to the adults. And they said, you know, you you can't have a mouse in here. And I pulled out, I was this kid. I pulled out like four Bible verses and said, you know, all creatures, praise God, all creatures are, are welcome in the house of the Lord. You know, I was, I was pontificating and they said, all right, fine, Sarah, here's a box. It needs to stay in the box and we're going to call your dad. And, you know, and it was just kind of one of those interesting moments where I saw that what I was being taught didn't exactly match what was in practice, you know, that, that what was in theory. And this happens all the time. And we know these as we know this as people, you know, out in the world, what we say that we do or what the aspiration is doesn't always match what we're actually doing. And so that was kind of a little bit of a wake up call there of we say there's all these amazing things about creatures and their relationship with God, but do we really mean it? And in that case, you know, there was a compromise. Well, I always love that story. You could just tell me that story every night and I would fall asleep with it. I love to, I love to share it too, because it takes me back to a moment where yeah, it's a remarkable moment. And it was a, a moment of courage, I think, for me too, at a very difficult time. My my teenage years were very, very difficult and and really hard. And and when I think about it, very heartbreaking too, of of some of the things I went through as a teen and a and a young adult. And so it it's a moment that is is filled with uh is filled with joy, but also is like, geez, Sarah, why'd you have to be so, you know, on the fringe and so rebellious? But I think it has served me well. I think it has. And and it also brings up another thing we have in common, 
10 years older than you, I had two mice, Clementine and Priscilla. And when my then fiance and my nanny, my nanny was elderly then, but she came everywhere still <laughs> with, with us, moved out west. We were looking for chiropractic colleges for my first husband to attend. So in their habit trail of fancy neon plastic, very large uh, road contraption, Clementine and Priscilla accompanied us uh, until one at a time they succumbed to something called uh, mouse pox and, and I lost them, but it's, you can have a relationship with pretty much anybody who has a life. I think that's something not all people understand. What do you think? I think you're absolutely right. I was, I was in a, uh, a seminar last week and at the very beginning of it, uh, we were asked to introduce ourselves by saying, if there was anything you could ask any animal, who would the animal be and what would the question be? And I immediately was thinking about a spider who's living up in the corner of one of my rooms. And I just can't seem to get the sweeper out and say, spider, you know, you don't belong here because spider seems to belong there. And I said, I would love to ask spider, are you doing math to figure out all those angles? Or do you just sense where you have to go next? Because spider webs are so infinitely, you know, just amazing to me of, of how how one would do that and, and with such precision. And I, I realized, I guess I have a relationship with that spider as an artiste, I suppose, as, as someone who has created something remarkable and beautiful in my home that I can look at it that way. Or I can say, oh, eeks, spider, grab the vacuum cleaner, right? I, I, you can have two very, very different responses and two very, very different relationships with any being we come across just based on how we're willing to look at perhaps how they view their life. You know, what Van Eckskull called the umwelt, like what, what is it like to be a spider and to create what they're creating? So yeah, I would say, Victoria, I have um, I have a lot of relationships and an increasing number of them are not human. <laughs> well, they will never do you wrong. I, you remind me of Wilbur in, in Charlotte's Web and, and his tribute to Charlotte. And I'm sure I'm not quoting this directly, but he says something to the effect of, it's not often that you find someone who is a good friend and a really good writer. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and think about that too, of these, these stories that we learn as children that are about animals. And then the, you know, that are personified, that are personified, they're anthropomorphized. Uh, you know, we are, we are given images and visuals of, of animals to love and to be compassionate and little stuffed ones to sleep with, with big, beautiful eyes. And then at some point, we're, we're almost ripped from that into, uh, no, those were storybooks. And, and here's how the world really is. And, and we're somehow ripped into it's almost for me as if the, you know, the carpets pulled out from under your feet of wait, you know, I, I loved, I loved these 
these pigs and these spiders and all of these different things. And, <laughs> you know, then that gets into why are you serving them to me? Uh, and, and lots of other questions we go through. And I, I have often wondered if um, teenage years or the entrance into adulthood might be easier if we weren't going through that cognitive dissonance. I don't know. I think you're very right. And I also think that it's introduced younger and younger at, at all the time. When my daughter was a um, little girl back in the 80s and 90s, nonfiction children's books were very popular. All kinds of books about how life really is and how to protect yourself and how to take care of yourself and how to be a good kid with good grooming. <laughs> and I remember that my daughter got hold of a great big volume of Grimm's fairy tales. And those things are difficult. There's, there's lots of um, almost torture and blood. Yeah, they're morbid. <laughs> they're morbid. <laughs> they're morbid. <laughs> but there's still tales with heroism and magic. And she clung to that thing. I remember she once left it in an airplane and we had to go back in the plane and get her book. This was in the days when you could go back in airplanes because she would not be parted from it. And I see now that there's something to, to wonder and magic and certainly animals who are very communicative that is just necessary for a human to become real. I think so. And I think you speak to something there, Victoria, that I've been thinking about, you know, with, with language, that there's, there's such an interesting uh, value that we place to animals who can speak. And even in, if you look at, at C.S. Lewis's work, or if you look at um, some, some other writers, but C.S. Lewis and the Narnia tales, you know, there are animals who speak and there are animals who don't speak. And the animals who speak are treated differently than the animals who don't speak. And how much we have privileged talking uh, as something that then affords people or affords other, other creatures, you know, moral uh, consideration. And if, if someone, if a being cannot speak to us now in a language we can understand, that somehow they, you know, they don't have cognition, that they aren't smart, they don't have intelligence, you know, that they they are only instinctual, they're automata. You know, we have this long, long, long history of humans are superior because we can speak. And then I think about taking this into the realm of spirituality. You know, I, I teach at a seminary, I teach in the in the Compassion Consortium's program as well, and teaching these practices where we're connecting beyond words when you meditate in a group when you pray in a group when you do something together that is pre-verbal or non-verbal how deep and amazing that connection can be i mean that's why we meditate that's why we forest bathe that's why we do kirtan together in words that we don't quite understand sometimes there's this this way of uh connecting that isn't what you and I are doing right now, right? Isn't, isn't based on conversation. And so I spend a lot of time thinking, you know, what's that like for cats and um, capuchin monkeys and 
field mice and spiders and, and how do they communicate? Because there's some fascinating things that we see. Uh, and we, you know, especially in, in marine mammals and different ways of communicating that we've just, you know, we've been too arrogant, I suppose, to, to be able to witness. And so a lot of the work that I'm doing now is trying to see if we bring other species into our spiritual practices, you know, if we meditate with them, uh, if we pray next to them, if we spend time observing them, can we perhaps treat them a little better and understand them a little better? And, you know, <laughs> the jury's still out, but I feel like the answer is, is can be yes. Are you a healthcare professional looking to translate psychedelic research into practice? Then register for Psychedelic Harm Reduction and Integration, a professional training offered by psychologist Elizabeth Nielsen and Ingmar Gorman at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Earn 12 continuing education credits as you discover how to better support clients who have an interest in psychedelics. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. I love that. Thank you, Reverend Sarah. I like the answer being yes. Yeah. So I know that you find the spirituality of animals utterly fascinating. And I think that a lot of people, even people who care about animals and who work tirelessly for animals, perhaps haven't thought about animal spirituality. Explain to us how you see that. Sure. And, you know, and I have to admit that I'm highly influenced by Jane Goodall, who was another remarkable woman and continues to be a remarkable woman, who first started off this conversation uh, when she was working in Gombe and this spiritual connection that she was feeling and what she was seeing in the way that she would see, you know, animals uh, respond to a waterfall or respond to a rainbow or to different types of things that seem to be spiritual. And so she started, you know, asking some questions about that. And then some other people started asking some questions about that. James Herod was one of the first who wrote an amazing paper called uh, Do Chimpanzees Have Religion? And he went and looked at, all right, you know, what do we do in religion? And could we make that cross species? And so he you know, kind of takes religion back to its essence as being about embracing wonder and having relationships of intimacy with something greater than us and having um, awe and different types of, you know, uh, things that aren't ritual or things that aren't uh, liturgy or, or that kind of thing. And so there've been a number of people that have started to wonder, okay, so, you know, what about the spirituality of animals? And alongside that, we've seen a lot of neuroscience that's trying to figure out about spirituality in humans. So when we pray, when we meditate, you know, what's what's going on up there in the brain? And they've isolated the areas in our brain in which those spiritual experiences happen. And perhaps that's why, you know, for we can we can lump um Buddhism and some Hinduism and yogic practices or, or different things that might not be the same relationship to a God, uh, all kind of into this idea of when we're trying to connect either deep inside or deep without, what happens? And the areas that light up in our brains 
are areas of the brain that we share with dogs, cats, primates, horses. So theoretically, those animals can also have those experiences because they have that same part of the brain. So I think it's I think it's kind of fascinating to wonder about that and to start to try to do practices. So there have been a number of research studies about people when they meditate with dogs. Are there benefits? And the answer is yes. Uh, they have also tried to see what happens when we do intercessory prayer on behalf of other beings. There was a study done on behalf of bush babies, and they found some really interesting results there. And then they also found another, another study I really like. Uh, had to do with humans watching nature or humans watching bear cams and seeing if humans could have benefits of, of, you know, animal spirituality. So I think we're at the beginning of this, but what we're seeing is it's, it's possible uh, and, and probable that animals are having these type of experiencing experiences, at least some animals that we call spirituality. I have seen that with domesticated animals. The first time probably was when I had a little meditation gathering in my apartment in Kansas City. And every Saturday morning, about a dozen people would come. And I had three cats at the time. And as we sat in our circle to meditate, nobody was holding a cat. The cats were all off doing whatever they wanted to do. But by the end of the meditation, three people were graced with a cat in the lap because there was something about yeah. that energy yeah. that drew them. And I saw certainly with my, my sweet dog Forbes who passed away not long ago, all I would have to say is Forbes want to meditate. And he would run into the room where I do that and jump on the bed where I sit to do that. He really knew and he liked it. I wish I liked it as much because for me, it's always been a discipline but for him, it was just a joy. Well, I think it's natural because they, you know, think about this. We are often just running around busy, crazy, doing our human things in our home. And when we focus our attention on a spiritual practice, which is what a spiritual practice is for, is learning how to moderate ourselves and our inner state. When, when we bring ourselves into a calmer state, into a more focused and less frenzied state, I think we are, <laughs> we are more likable by the other animals in our home who are used to trying to not, you know, run out from under our feet so they don't get stepped on or want some attention, but we're doing 10,000 other things. And so when we're able to bring ourselves down into deep breath or into stillness, or into slow, slower states of being, that's attractive. That's attractive to, you know, it's the same thing when you, when you sit on the sofa with a blanket and the next thing you know, you get cat on my lap syndrome. So if we want to connect better with the animals we live with, being able to spend more time in a chiller state is, is beneficial for them. And it's also beneficial for us. You know, that's why we see Reiki, happening as well, you know, interspecies Reiki. Uh, we see other practices that are happening. And, and I think the more that we can do that, the more well-being we can see because they're less stressed because we're less stressed. Hmm. 
I think that we've seen that in the Compassion Consortium. For those of you who are not familiar with the consortium, it was actually the brainchild of my husband, uh, William Melton, who's also an interfaith minister, um, as is Sarah. And we had another founder of Reverend Erica Allison. She's gone off to do other amazing things. But something that she has brought into the services that we have been doing for the past year and a half is animal meditation. And she didn't stick with dogs, cats, primates, and horses. I mean, she had us meditating with goats and pigs and chickens and all kinds of people. So what do you think? How far can we spread this? You know, I think I think we can spread it pretty far. Um, I I've been doing similar practices with my students for about four years, and it's it's really fascinating to see how people take to it. That you know, we, we hear a lot of people say, "Oh, I love you know, I love how I feel in nature," or um, "I want to bring creation care or stewardship into my church." Uh, different ways of doing that, and so. I think that the, the challenge to all of us is to say, how can I include more beings in the things that we're already doing? So, for example, uh, at the Compassion Consortium, uh, you know, instead of starting with organ music at the beginning of our services, we play about two minutes of sounds from the more than human world. It could be sea lions, it could be bumblebees, it could be bird song, but but orienting ourselves that way as as music is one way. Super, super easy if you're not an interfaith minister to be able to do that and say, hey, can we start our meditation practice or can we start our yoga class with just listening to a minute or two of, you know, something else that's that's not human chatter. The other way is for, you know, like we do in our, in our videos uh, of, you know, creating videos where we're doing practices with animals and then showing that to groups. That's really helpful. But the other thing is think about doing this. Let's say you've got a group of preschool kids in a Sunday school class and they're in the, the you know, they're in the room uh, together learning their Bible verses. What if they go outside and sit in a circle out in the field behind the church and listen for a few minutes, and then you ask them, okay, what do we mean by praise God from whom all blessings flow? Praise him, all creatures here below. What do you kids think about that? Which creatures did we just hear? So I think there's innumerable ways to do this uh, based on how you feel comfortable and what ways are, you know, make sense for your community. Does that answer the question, Victoria? Oh, it, it does. And it brings a lot of thoughts to me. Like, a heightened respect for all kinds of creatures. And we know that you're not supposed to bother the dog when the dog is eating, and you're not supposed to jump into the flock of pigeons on the street because they are doing what pigeons do. But you know, it just might be that some of these animals are in prayer. <laughs> and so that's that's a cool thing to think about. Yeah. And 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 when you that you're, what you're talking about there too is careful observance. And so I, you know, I spend a lot of time where I'll be sitting in the city and all of a sudden there's like 30 pigeons and I just sit down and I just watch them and, and what are they doing and stop thinking, stop, you know, just start breathing deeply. And, and I will find just like those cats in your meditation circle, 
the next thing I know, I've got 30 pigeons around me. <laughs> and I become, you know, like the, the lady out of Mary Poppins. And so when we are observant of our interspecies connections, we are able to take away perhaps some inspirations for things we can do in our communities to help people better consider well-being of other animals. So true. Now, in your case, that doesn't stop with living animals. You have a roadkill ministry. Please explain that to us. I do. And when I first started talking about it publicly, I, I thought, oh boy, people are going to think I have two heads. But the more I speak about it, the more I have found other people are doing this too. And that's just amazing that other people, you know, as we're think about it this way, you're driving down the road and you see a little squash dead critter on the side of the road. What do we do? What do we do? Well, we've become desensitized. And so we usually you know, kind of just go right by, or we try not to see, we're not sure what to do. So we try not to see. Well, when I was age six, I used to pick them up, take them off the road, right? Do a little bit of a burial. Uh, I'm older now, and I understand a little more about uh, hygiene as well. So, you know, I have some orange flashing lights that I have that I stick out on the side of the Jeep. I've got a, a high visibility vest that I put on and a bunch of shovels and gloves, and I pull over, throw on my hazards on, and then I move them to the side of the road. And I say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry about what has happened to you here and the complicity of us and our vehicles. And I hope you are free from pain and free from suffering. And I hope you have a most auspicious next lifetime. And then I might pick up a few little kind of uh, leaves and kind of drop them over their wound area. And then, then I move on. Uh, I could do this 30 or 40 times a week because the sad, sad news is that a million animals die each day, each day in the U.S. alone from vehicle strikes, a million. So, you know, I try to raise awareness for people of that as well, saying, can we, can we if we are animal lovers, can we make a commitment to not text while we're driving? Can we make a commitment to go the speed limit so we give ourselves enough time in case an animal comes out in front of us? And if you do see a little passed on one on the side of the road, doesn't mean you have to stop, but could you place your hand over your chest for just a moment over your heart and say, hey, I am so sorry and I hope you're free from suffering. And if we can do that, you know, I think there's a reverence and an honoring uh, that that is important, a witnessing of saying, I see what happens here. I'm not turning away from it. I see what happens. And of course, I do also do a lot of funerals and uh, services and grief and loss work with people around companion animals. And I'm actually doing a funeral for a goat at an animal sanctuary at the end of this week uh, who died so that the people, the volunteers who work at that sanctuary are able to honor uh, a goat that they loved very much and, and now is no longer in its body and start to process the loss of, of living without them. So there's a whole area here also about what do we do when animal die, animals die, and that's an area that's important to me too. Yes, and you've just written a few months ago, it came out, your, your fabulous latest book, Sacred Sendoffs. 
So tell us about that. And also tell us a little bit about how you did your book tour. That's utterly fascinating. <laughs> yeah, so the book is really, you know, it's a combination of lots of really interesting um, stories about how we revere animals, lots of practical knowledge for what do you do uh, if an animal has died, a companion animal or wildlife, and some tips for you about getting over grief and loss. And of course, has a, a good sense of humor and snarky stories. I, I like to be joyful and light, even when we're talking about tough topics, it helps, it helps us uh, integrate them better. So it has all sorts of different information in the book about how do we how do we work with loss. And so instead of going to bookstores for the tour, because we're just coming off COVID as well, and a lot of the bookstores were only doing Zoom, um, I did talks at different sanctuaries, uh, at pet expos. Uh, we did some some things at at grief hospices, and we went to the places that animals were, and people who love animals were to have those conversations and to do different rituals and practices and to help people do the things that we've been talking about today, Victoria. Well, this is a very interesting topic to me. In fact, I, I've just written the uh, blog post, this week's blog post for MainStreetVegan.com called Loving Animals, Hating Cruelty, Can These Meet? And this was based on an animal rights activist that I knew a long, long, long time ago. And she was very interesting to me because she claimed that she didn't love animals, that the reason she was an animal rights activist was because she hated cruelty. Huh. And that was so hard for me to understand because I just love animals. <laughs> I mean, I find them appealing. I, I just, there's just everything about them I find utterly fascinating. But the older I get, I find that the more that hating cruelty part is in there and wanting to prevent animal suffering and, and animal death at the hands of, of humans. And so when I think about your reaching out to the companion animal community, the people who are very interested in, in their dogs and probably to a lesser extent cats. I think it's really dogs that bring out the, <laughs> the, that aspect of us, you know, that wants to put clothes on somebody who probably would do just as well without them. So when you speak with someone whose heart is open to that level, but they don't seem to be thinking much at all about other animals, how do you effectively and maybe even kindly communicate? I think it comes down to helping people know more about different species. I don't think anything really comes out of saying, hey, you treat this one species this way. Why don't you treat another species this way? Because we're not, we're not rational. We're not logical. We love to say we are, but we're not. But what I've seen is if we can get people interested in other species, then they may have a relationship with them, care about them, want to conserve them. And we have tons of scientific research that tells us that, that we need people to have relationships with those other beings in order to care about them. We don't care about them theoretically or you know, in abstract very, very well. So I spend a lot of time on my Instagram or in conversations with people trying to just share things with them that I think are fascinating. For example, 
there is a squirrel in the Himalaya that is three feet tall. That blows my mind. So, you know, I'll talk to people, people who say, I hate squirrels. And so I'll talk to them about all the amazing things squirrels can do. And so I may be able to, you know, cut through a little bit that way. This works particularly well with fish. How amazing fish are, the traits that fish can do. If we know more about them, we're we're less likely to want to eat someone that we know more about them. So we have to take animals out of the abstract and we have to make it more personal. And, And I think it's interesting that also, you know, people who are activists who are very, very focused on saving, um, on saving animals, often are missing this piece about what to do when we lose animals. So there's another piece there, Victoria, I think, too, about helping people understand how to care for animals when we lose them. And talking about that can also open up people to caring about other species. So, you know, I don't have I don't have a, a single answer for this, but for me, it's I try to get people interested in understanding more about the lives of the beings I want them to care about. Thank you. And thank you for the book because it helped me a lot in losing my dog unexpectedly. You know, we have these ideas about how long somebody is supposed to live. I love the story that Anne Lamott tells when a a young man and her Buddhist Sangha passed away and everybody was distraught and they were waiting for the spiritual teacher to come and give them the big explanation of why this had happened and what they were supposed to do about it and how they could feel fine. But he walked up on stage and said, In our culture, we believe that death comes in old age, when in reality, no one knows when their death will come. And he walked off the stage. And I thought about that when I lost Forbes at an age that I believed cheated me out of five years (laughs) because of my preconception. But I have to say the fact that I had read sacred send-offs because I read it in a pre-edition, so probably about six months before we lost Forbes, was such a help. So, so to anybody who has lost an animal friend or who may one day lose an animal friend, uh, do have sacred send-offs on your bookshelf. You will be so, so happy that it's there. So Sarah, I want you to talk a little bit about the Compassion Consortium. And I'm not sure I was clear when I brought that up before. It's my husband now and Reverend Sarah and me. I, I am the irreverent. I have a degree in comparative religion. <laughs> oh, we're all studies. irreverent. <laughs> so it, 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 it kind of counts. But just, just explain to my wonderful listeners that I love so much, most of them have come over from Main Street Vegan, yay, um, and now we're doing this, this other new wonderful thing, but just explain the Compassion Consortium and what we do from your point of view. Sure. So the idea of Compassion Consortium is that we have a place for people to gather where we can talk about and learn about and experience animals in a safe uh, container, if you will, where we are all agreed upon the idea that animal lives matter, human and other species, all other species, and that we are agreed that we revere them, we honor them, we want to know more about them, we care about them, and we want to do everything we can to minimize and end their suffering. 
And the reason that's important is many of us that grew up in a particular faith tradition uh, or in a philosophy or in, or in even just a family that uh, sanctioned or was okay with the injuring of animals, you know, we've, we've got some trauma left over from that. We've got some, ah, you know, some worry that when we're in a community, it's not going to be safe. And let me be specific about that. So, you know, I used to go to church and we'd have a wonderful church service and I liked it and there was singing and there was, you know, other stuff and community and talked to a bunch of people. And then they'd say, and afterwards join us outside for the pig roast. And I'd say, what? I don't want to go to that. We just talked about how all creatures, <laughs> um, you know, have a relationship with God. I don't want to do that. I don't feel safe anymore. I don't feel like this is my community or that I can speak up. And so Compassion Consortium is a safe place where we can say, we're not going, you're not going to be asked to do things that are outside your value system like that. And we have some things that are kind of experiential, like uh, Victoria was talking about. And we have a wonderful guest speaker who from all sorts of different uh, spiritual traditions that Victoria does an interview. We talk about what people in the community are doing to spread compassion. We do a blessings and prayers section that's non-denominational. It's open for anyone uh, who wants to come. And we think of the consortium in two ways. It can either be your spiritual home or it can be your spiritual vacation home. <laughs> so if you already belong to a church or a synagogue or a mosque or someplace where you are a member, but you'd like to, and you feel like you might benefit from having a community that's specific to your animal advocacy or care for the environment, you know, you can come to us too as a second home. Did I cover Victoria? Oh, it was, that was absolutely yeah. beautiful. Well, you left out the music. We always have a song of compassion. Ah, yes. Yes, and, we do. And Sarah makes a video to go with the song of compassion that is full of animals and always, always so lovely. And we actually have a very special Sunday coming up on the 25th of September. We meet once a month via Zoom, four o'clock Eastern time. And our special guest for this special Sunday, we're calling it Membership Sunday, when we're going to celebrate some amazing people in the community. But our special guest coming from the outside is Ivana Lynch, who is known from when she was a teenager, she played Luna Lovegood in the last four Harry Potter movies. And she's gone on to become the most dedicated animal activist. She has a, a podcast with Melanie Joy about communicating ideas about animal rights out into the larger world. She's doing circus performing. She's just a fascinating, fascinating guest. And she's also the author of a lovely book called The Opposite of Butterfly Hunting. It's kind of a coming of age um, autobiography that goes into her experience with anorexia and coming through that. So please check us out at Compassion Consortium or Consortium. I looked it up. Both are good. Dot O-R-G. And um, join us on, on the 25th and uh, other times as well. So Sarah, we're also doing something that is just incredibly cool and it is your brainchild and that is the animal chaplaincy training program. So uh, shout from the housetops on what's going on there. 
Yes. Yeah, so, you know, animal chaplains. Uh, so f- most folks know kind of what a chaplain is. A chaplain someone who helps people through, you know, grief or loss or joys or questions or things you might need support with, but isn't someone who's attached to a particular church or a synagogue or a mosque or whatever that is. But chaplains are a little bit like free agents in some ways, where we go where the places people might have issues are. So you see chaplains in hospitals or chaplains in hospice. There are chaplains now in NASCAR. There's a Hollywood chaplain. There are corporate chaplains, educational chaplains. So animal chaplains are folks who help animals and the people who love animals through all sorts of different things where they might have questions or need support with. And so you you will see us uh, in veterinary hospitals, or you might see us uh, in a, in a vet program or supporting an animal sanctuary, like what I'm doing uh, next week in animal sanctuary or working with people one-on-one around their questions about human animal bonds and interactions. And so we have a training program now, uh, We have a three-month, a six-month, and a nine-month program. Uh, Each one's a little deeper and goes into some different topics. And our incoming cohort right now is about 50 folks who are just amazing in their own own right. And we're looking forward to seeing how this expands and being able to place more animal chaplains around the world so they can help animals and the humans who love them. It's very exciting. I'm thrilled to pieces that so many people are interested in this. You have obviously hit a nerve. You found something that people are really interested in. So I know that the current program just began. Can somebody still get in or do they have to wait till next year? So we are taking a few uh, late enrollees. Uh, So if you go to compassionconsortium.org slash training, you can get the information of the specific dates and the information about enrolling. And then we will start another class um, next fall as well. So there, there is an opportunity for, for a few folks and it'll give you an idea of, you know, kind of how much reading there is, how much work uh, you'll, you can also see who's on. We have a really amazing kind of adjunct faculty of guest experts in, in different areas who are coming in to speak on, a wide, wide range of different topics. So that's kind of a fascinating piece as well, dealing with compassion fatigue for those of us who are involved in animal care work. It's such a big piece of this is how do you keep yourself going? How do you keep yourself sane uh, with all of the things we're dealing with? So that's another piece of this as well. Oh, that's wonderful. And we will put all of these URLs in the show notes at victoriamoran.com. That website wasn't up last week when I first mentioned it, but it should be up this week. And that is said with lots of uh, prayer and fingers crossed, because sometimes a little bit of superstition might help too. So speaking of prayer, Sarah, I was asked by some listeners to do something a little bit different with this program than what I did on the Main Street Vegan Show. And that is to just hang out for a little while and talk kind of one-on-one to the listeners after the guest has gone on to change the world. So um, as I prepare to say goodbye to you, I'm wondering if you would like to close this part out with some sort of little uh, benediction for animals and people and whoever else might be listening. 
I would love to. And what I will use is the closing piece from the book, Sacred Sendoffs, which is a, a bit of a benediction piece. So I will, first of all, thank Victoria for having me on in this lovely, wonderful chat. And I hope it was useful for all of you. And then I will say, take a deep breath. And let these words sink in. May my presence be a blessing to all creatures. Blessed furriness walking on four legs, may you be sustained and flourish. Blessed feathered of the skies, may you be sustained and flourish. Blessed finned beings of the waters, may you be sustained and flourish. And blessy leafy ones rooted deep down into the earth, may you be sustained and flourish. Glory be to the forests and to the deserts and to the holy seas as it was in the beginning, is now, and probably ever shall be. So may I live in connection with the everlasting cycle of life. And when this body can no longer sustain me, may I be blessed with a sacred send-off. Amen. Amen, indeed. Thank you so much, Sarah Bowen. Everybody who doesn't know this woman already, get to know her because she's remarkable. Bye, Sarah. Thank you so much. Bye-bye, everyone. And everybody who is hanging on for a few minutes, hi. Thank you for being here. And thank you in particular. Well, thank you in particular twice. First, to the people who subscribed to the Main Street Vegan program. We did that for very close to 10 years, 475 episodes. And those are all still here. It's the same RSS feeds that has led into this, this new program. And I think part of what inspired this is because I feel that one of the things I've done in my life is collected the most amazing people. And I really want to, to share some of those people with you. So let me know what you want to hear more of, what's interesting to you, what you like the most. And one way that you can do that is by joining the Victoria Moran podcast listeners group on Facebook. And that way we can just have a lot of conversations about what goes on here and what you like and, and what's going on with you. So to just tell you a little bit of what's going on with me, which some people were asking because they wanted to hear, that's very kind and thank you very much for that. I'm mostly getting over the loss of our dog Forbes and we're going to have a little uh, memorial service for him here in, in our apartment coming up in a couple of weeks. And it's very interesting because it will be the first time we've actually had a gathering with people since the pandemic. And it used to be, we just had gatherings all the time. I used to do the Main Street Vegan Academy program in person. 
And people would come every day for six days into my home. I would say to people, it's sort of like you have a wedding and then you have a bar mitzvah and then you have a golden anniversary and you just keep having these big events every day for six days. And my daughter was living in the city. She and her husband are touring now. They're doing a pirate show for the Dollywood theme park. So they're in Tennessee. And it's been a few years since we've had family around for holidays. So um, the being who is going to bring some folks together in, in three dimensions is Forbes. And we're going to celebrate his wonderful life. And who knows, by then we might even be celebrating the adoption of somebody else. We'll just see how that goes. We have been looking into a very gentle, docile dogs, because we have a rescue pigeon who can't fly. And he walks around on the floor. And some people said to me, well, you can just never have another dog again, because that wouldn't be safe for the pigeon. But it was safe with Forbes. I mean, certainly we did some training and some preparation. We didn't just say, hey, you two meet. But they were together for four years and got along. So we're going to see if maybe we can recreate that. And there might be someone to see off and uh, someone to welcome in. That's kind of a lot of what life is, isn't it? And I did mention Main Street Vegan Academy. So I am going to just give a shout out to that amazing program. If you're not familiar with it, and if you happen to be vegan and you're interested in upping your vegan game, becoming a certified vegan lifestyle coach and educator, which I've seen over the 10 years that we've done this program is just the beginning. We have graduates who have started all kinds of amazing businesses, bed and breakfast, cowboy boots, bodegas, other kinds of retail shops, um, an award-winning bakery, a beautiful fromagerie, a vegan cheese shop, ice cream companies, cheese and yogurt companies, all kinds of things. And then other graduates are actually working for plant-based companies or for animal rights organizations. Some of our people have actually founded their own nonprofits. So Main Street Vegan Academy seems to be a way to launch people. So I do want to give you a discount code for the course coming up in October, because I'm so grateful that you are listening to this podcast. It's the least I can do. And that code is kindness with a capital K and then the numerals two zero kindness 20. And that gets you 20% off on tuition. We also have a brand new website, mainstreetvegan.com. And you can now pay your tuition in pieces. So you don't have to pay it all at once up front. So our next course is starting the 1st of October. It will be seven weekend days and long days, intense days. It's really fun. And there's really a lot. And we have an incredible faculty. So many of them are people that if you did listen to the Main Street Vegan podcast, you met then people like uh, fashion designer Joshua Catcher, Chef Fran Costigan, Marianne Sullivan, JD, and Jasmine Singer of Our Hen House. And of course, Jasmine has uh, so many other accolades now. She's part of Kinder Beauty. She's part of Veg News. She's written a bunch of books. So our faculty is cool and you really get to know them. And then if you like, we stay with you 
with all kinds of support and networking after the fact, because you know, what's life if you don't have somebody who's got your back? So thank you so much for listening today. Go on out and be remarkable. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can learn more about Victoria or contact her at victoriamoran.com. Be part of her inner circle by joining the Victoria Moran Podcast Listeners Group on Facebook. And if you're a vegan looking to up your game, check out Victoria's acclaimed training and certification program, Main Street Vegan Academy at MainStreetVegan.com. I'm Suzanne Giesman, and if you've ever wondered about life after death or if it's possible to connect with a higher consciousness, I invite you to join me for my podcast, Messages of Hope. It's my mission to share with you that our loved ones who have passed are always with us, and we are so very loved. I want to teach you how to live a consciously connected and divinely guided life. Listen here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network.